technology can play a big role and it is playing a big role in improving people's quality of life everybody in the technology industry should be paying attention to not only serving the well to do part of the society but also figuring out how we can make a broader impact and i think you can do both you can build a successful company and also make an impact in various ways welcome to the data chief Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Ajit Singh is a risk taker. There's no other way to describe someone who's done the things he has and accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. An immigrant, entrepreneur, and most importantly, a disruptor, Singh has constructed two multi-billion dollar entities from the ground up. Throughout his journey, he's been guided by two principles his out of the box thinking and curiosity about how he can improve people's lives as a young entrepreneur working in silicon valley during the big data days singh noticed the data and analytics space was ripe for disruption so he did something about it first with nutanix and now with thoughtspot where he's working to solve some of the world's biggest problems by democratizing data for all on this episode of the data chief singh co-founder and executive chairman at thoughtspot dives into some of the biggest challenges facing CDOs in 2021, why organizations must empower their leadership teams to drive meaningful change, and how big tech can be utilized for good moving forward. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at thoughtspot.com. So this week, I'm pleased to introduce somebody who needs no introduction, an entrepreneur, a visionary, somebody I can now call friend and colleague, Ajit Singh. Ajit, welcome. Thanks for having me, Cindy. So we're good friends, but I don't know. I'm picturing what's outside your window and what's outside my window. What does it look like outside there? Oh, well, here in California, actually, uh, it's uh, it's pretty decent. It's uh, nice and sunny, and uh, it's been it's been relatively cold here the last uh, uh, couple of months. But it's all relative, you know. If you're in California, what yes. we call cold might be actually <laughs> amazing weather. <laughs> in london i was talking to my brother who lives in london over the weekend and he was uh, like you're spoiled so no i'm very cognizant of that and we are very blessed to be living <laughs> in this part of the country uh, hopefully the fire season this year will be better than last so i think everywhere there is some struggle uh, but right now uh, it's looking good that's great yes we are having another blizzard here in the northeast so it is relative and we did have empathy for california during the fires you know, Aji, you're a serial entrepreneur now disrupting the data and analytics space, but I don't think everyone realizes that you actually have spent a long time in the data and analytics space. So can you take us back to maybe, was it 2007 when you were working at Oracle? Yeah, uh, certainly. So, I mean, my career actually, I before I went to Astrid, so, uh, Astrid Data, it was a short stint at Oracle, about a year. And then I spent a couple of years um, at uh, Astra Data. It wasn't uh, that long. 
my career, it's been a bunch of different things, starting with management consulting, then a supply chain planning software. Then I went to Honeywell doing aerospace software. Uh, so I have really enjoyed just um, uh, learning about a lot of different things, doing different things. Some of it was planned. Some of a lot of it was just a bunch of accidents. I just chose to work with the best people I could find at every juncture of my career. And I ended up doing all these different things. Um, but yeah, I think coming to Oracle in 2007 and learning about databases was uh, really uh, a big change uh, for me. Uh, I had uh, not before worked inside a company that was building a database product. Uh, me and my teams earlier would use database as part of building applications. But uh, it was a it was a complete change, and uh, it was a lot of learning, a lot of really amazing learning. I read, read a bunch of uh, research actually that was going on on database compression was a new hot thing. Oracle was doing something, and Vertica was coming out with this columnar compression uh, techniques, and everybody was saying my compression is better than yours. So those were <laughs> we still do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I also realized how sort of uh, silly some of those uh, arguments are. Uh, uh, but anyway, you know, data and analytics is a very uh, broad industry. And uh, it's, uh, I, I like to think of this uh, almost as a continent. It's not even a country or a state. Inside this continent, there is there is a lot of different countries and a lot of different states. So you do need some uh, time in the industry to be able to coherently think about the problems and how you might be able to solve them. Yeah, I like that analogy of thinking of it as a continent. Um, that I, I like that. And and I think what's also interesting, if you look at where we are now, as it relates to cloud, could you have envisioned then you were doing some of the early work with the database on AWS? Um, would you have imagined that it would either take this long or be so important now? It was pretty difficult to imagine uh, that things would um, get to where they are and how quickly they've gotten here. 2007, I was at Oracle and uh, Amazon was really keen on certifying Oracle database to run on EC2. EC2 and S3 were just very brand new services at the time. Nobody really cared about AWS. Uh, it was an early uh, science experiment. So <laughs> I was uh, the product manager talking to uh, teams at uh, Amazon and they were very keen and we were doing benchmarking on performance and so on and so forth and for the longest time, Oracle did not support AWS as a certified platform. I don't know if they do it now, but uh, it was really actually very interesting to see how uh, different an operating model it could be if you could uh, run these kinds of uh, workloads uh, in the cloud. And for the longest time, it continued to be just a developer uh, platform. It's only in the last two to three years that we have started seeing a lot of really critical uh, production workloads move to the cloud en masse. And so I think some of the organizations are st still holding back. Uh, but uh, last two, three years, things have changed quite a bit uh, with Snowflake and uh, others uh, leading the chart. And as they say, you know, any change, uh, it builds very slowly, but then there is a massive uh, shift that occurs in the industry. And I think that is what we are seeing uh, now. For sure, for sure. So the massive shifts in the industry, it's exciting, but it also can be challenging. And as you talk to both CEOs and CDO, CDOs, 
What do you see as their biggest challenges in in unlocking the value of data? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing people are trying to do right now is uh, move to the cloud. And uh, many have moved to the cloud. Companies that were digital natives, they were born in the cloud. It's been very natural for them. And it's very hard for an enterprise to compete with those digital natives, both in business and in technology. So I think that is where the, the challenge is for the CEOs and CDOs. The good thing is, uh, with the momentum that we have, doing cloud is no longer a question of if we should do it or if we should not. It's a question of how quickly we can do it and how should we do it. And the biggest challenge that I see uh, in that is uh, it comes down to change management and uh, talent. Yeah, so change management and the talent. And there was an article uh, in the last week from Harvard Business Review saying that the change management often fails at the leadership level, that the leaders maybe are not willing or ready to acknowledge that they have to totally change their business. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, change management as a as a, as a practice that's been in the, in the businesses. We have seen that for many decades. And uh, any significant change cannot occur without there being an absolute uh, commitment from the top. Uh, and uh, there have to be risks, bold bets that have to be made. People that are chartered with making a change, they have to be empowered as well. You know, it's very easy to create, say, a chief innovation officer or a chief data officer and you hire these people, uh, but then you don't really create a mandate to for the whole business to fundamentally shift. Capital One, one of our customers, uh, I know that from the CEO down, there was a, a plan and it was a it was really something that uh, couldn't be negotiated. The whole company had to move to the cloud within a certain time period and everything else was stopped for it. So unless uh, you really take a very strong stance on a change that is uh, as big as moving to the cloud, it, it does not happen. And many companies are trying to do it piecemeal uh, incrementally, I think it's good to initially experiment with a few things, but at some point you have to decide that this is going to be the way that we will do things um, going forward. And anything new just has to stop uh, being the old way. Right. So you talked about change management, but also the talent. And when talent uh, experience in the cloud is so tight, how do you address that? How do you recruit? How do you upskill? We're all competing for the same talent. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, I think there's a few different uh, models companies have uh, uh, followed. If you look at uh, one of our customers, um, Walmart, they obviously have a very, very strong technical team, given that they had started Walmart e-commerce business uh, several years ago. So there's always been the business team that does an amazing job of running uh, their stores business. Then you have e-commerce, so that gave them a big impetus. And then they also acquired Jet.com which brought uh, a sl slightly different DNA uh, into the company. And I think they've done a good job of collectively pulling all of this together. And uh, that shows in the results that uh, you can see with Walmart over the last uh, a few years, they have been doing really well and giving Amazon a run for their money. So for yeah, sure. you've got to uh, invest, you have to uh, empower, and sometimes you even have to bring enough of a critical mass from the outside and then uh, figure out a structure in which things can work together. You might have to acquire companies and then put them with your existing businesses and 
and figure out where do we want to give uh, responsibilities and how the two teams can work together in a way that the combined entity can eventually become uh, digitally transformed. And, you know, you talked about also making bold bets. I once said to you, it's easy for you to take risks. You have founded, co-founded two companies now. And yet the first company, Nutanix, you started at a time that maybe it was not wise to be taking such bold risks. Do you remember this or can you share this? Starting a company, it's sort of an irrational desire to do something. Um, and uh, starting Nutanix was uh, a very interesting period in my uh, life. My son was actually born the same week that uh, we started Nutanix. And I was a recent immigrant to the country and not a lot of financial cushion and so on. But uh, you know, I think uh, when, you, when you see uh, a good team that you can work with, for me, it's always been about people. And uh, I had an opportunity to uh, work with people that uh, I respected and uh, I, I trusted. Uh, but that said, I think even outside of uh, startups, I've been in large companies as well. I was at Honeywell for four years. And we built a totally new product uh, from the ground up uh, there. This was 2003, uh, 2007. I spent four years there. And uh, we hired IDEO to do design for the service, software-based service that we were building. It was possible because we, I had the opportunity to work with a very forward-thinking uh, leader. And uh, I learned design thinking uh, through that whole process. And I could see that how you can build totally different products if you can build, if you can keep the users, the people, the humans in the center of building your technology. So how does um, the design thinking influence why you first wanted to disrupt the BI and the analytics market? So design thinking helps you understand uh, deeply the people that you are trying to serve with your solution. And uh, what we saw in 2012 was that um, with the Tableau and Click, people were able to build better dashboards uh, for sure. And it was easier than what was possible with the prior generation of technology, uh, which was business objects and, and micro strategy and so on and so forth. Uh, but still, if a merchant at a retailer needed to understand their sales trends, um, they had to go to an analyst to build a dashboard for them. While this was going on in the data space, if you looked at the consumer space with Google, anyone can go and ask any question, and it was completely democratized. And we said, why can't we use a similar user experience paradigm to really help the business users? You know, there is... Uh, almost a billion plus knowledge workers in the world who could be using data to make lots of small decisions they make on a, on a given day. If the cost and effort of making those decisions uh, with data was extremely low, what Google did was reduce the cost of access to information. It became thousands or maybe a million times cheaper to get the information that you needed. And that's why you see so much adoption and we wanted to do the same thing uh, for data. So uh, my journey as an entrepreneur has been heavily influenced by design thinking at Nutanix. We try to uh, simplify uh, data centers with a very different uh, architecture and a software-driven approach. At uh, ThoughtSpot, we're trying to simplify data. Right. So you're applying this to try to bring data to the non-analysts, to the business users. 
And if, you know, you said with these bold bets for you, it's about having the right people, starting with the right people. But you also have a thinking that I've, I've witnessed of a not impossible mindset, maybe influenced by McEbeling. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. And um, I think a lot of this discussion tends to be, you know, about me as a person, but I have to say that uh, I realize how little I have to do with uh, whatever has happened at Nutanix and now at ThoughtPod. A lot of it actually is uh, working with people who are like-minded and you go back and forth and your ideas improve. You know, <laughs> one of the uh, analogies that people talk about when you're doing startups is uh, jumping off a cliff and building a parachute while you are going down. So uh, I think there is lots of different uh, analogies, but uh, I do think that uh, to make a big change, you need to have an irrational desire to do it. Because if you go through all the rationality, you will come up with so many reasons on why something shouldn't be done. Yeah. And that's where, like, I, I, it's, I'm not trying to focus the conversation so much about you, but I'm picturing that CDO and even a, a CDO last week said to me, why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to push through plans that she knows will make her organization better? And so it, is, is it some of that thinking, the way you've disrupted mm -hmm. companies, industries, are there lessons to be learned that CDOs can apply internally? Yeah, no, humans uh, don't like change. We don't like change, right? We want to do what what we know and uh, it's not uh, natural for us to want change for the sake of it and if you want to transform what is important is to actually uh, be able to have deep empathy for people that you are trying to influence so if there is a cdo and they want their teams to suddenly become a lot more data driven or do things differently do things in the cloud go and learn machine learning it has to be uh, grounded in the reality of the life of people they are trying to change. They have to understand what pain they have, what aspirations they have, so that it can be framed in their context. If you just say it's good for the company, let's say I'm running a large retail organization or financial services or whatever business you might be running, manufacturing company. If, you, if we just say that this is, uh, we need to do this because it is good for the company. That's good. That's required. But ultimately, it also has to translate into what's in it for the employees, for the team members. Why should they change? Yeah. What's in it yeah. for me or with yeah. them? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard you use the term. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, people will act uh, with full force if both of these things can be aligned. It's good for the company and it's good for the person as well. And that's the job of the leader to understand that uh, how can I align these bunch of small magnets so that overall there is a huge magnetic force of change that gets created. And sometimes you have to move people in different roles, different jobs uh, when there's not a good fit. Otherwise, uh, it can also lead to a lot of insecurity. What they can feel is that they yes. can actually resist. It can become worse. They can resist change. They think the company wants to do X. I want to do Y. Let me prevent X from happening. Block it. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. Complacency. Yeah. So <laughs> if you are not able to create a win-win, I think it's a, it's a failing cause uh, for sure. And it's not an easy thing. It, there's not a panacea. It really depends on the context 
of the teams, the organization, uh, the goals, the incentive structures, the demographics of uh, people, the skills, uh, what they want to do, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of things come into play. And so when I think about the skills and, you know, how hard it will be to push change through, you recently gave me a book by James Clear, Atomic Habits, and he talks about the tribe, how people want to Mm -hmm. fit in and belong and will actually choose an irrational decision, a less effective decision, if it means that um, they have a greater sense of belonging with mm-hmm. the tribe. And so I think about this, if we could crack that nut of, is it leaders, where's their sense of belonging um, to be change agents to drive innovation? Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very good uh, uh, framework, actually. If you can inspire your whole team, if they can see that everybody is changing, uh, if they can feel that my tribe is changing, you know, that is when it just becomes natural and uh, you won't see resistance. But if there is sort of political undercurrents that are going against the what is right for the organization, then it becomes uh, really hard. You know, every change, I like to say that uh, change creates friction and friction creates politics. And uh, it's important for re- leaders to be very open about that, to be explicit about that, and to clearly articulate what the end state looks like to clearly articulate in that end state, what different members of the teams uh, will uh, have or not have, and then ensure that uh, there is transparency in how the decisions are being made. Because when you try to change, you sometimes end up with, you know, some people get some more responsibilities, they might get more headcount, there will be some other people who will have less responsibility or less headcount. And uh, it's important for you to have open discussions uh, about these things. And if you see resistance, sometimes you have to make some tough decisions. Right. So friction, politics, and that also relates to culture. And we know in the data and analytics space from the ThoughtSpot Thought Leaders events, 67% say that culture is the reason they can't move forward. New research from Randy Bean of New Vantage Partners actually had it as high as 92%. That is mainly in financial services, insurance, and healthcare, whom his organization serves. You have a distinct view on culture a culture of selfless excellence. Can you describe what that means? Yeah. So at ThoughtSpot, we like to use two words to describe our culture, selfless excellence. And uh, I feel that every organization, every tribe uh, has a culture. And you can be uh, deliberate about uh, building that culture, or it can be a series of accidents that happen over time. At ThoughtSpot, we have uh, tried to be very, very deliberate about our culture from day one. And the whole idea of selfless excellence is that uh, we strive to be excellent at what we do. We want to be the world's best. We want to recruit people who want to be the world's best at what we do. But we always do it in a selfless manner. We put the team ahead of ourselves. And my theory is that um, in the long run, that is the best way to be selfish because building a company is a team sport. And uh, (laughs) uh, if if the company becomes successful, then um, everybody is happy. If the company doesn't become successful, then nobody is happy. I, I think it's easier, though, in context of a startup that has a clean slate and you're starting from there. It is harder in um, larger organizations 
which uh, might have gone the wrong way. Some large organizations have amazing culture and uh, it's, it's really great to see how they've been able to scale their cultures for a very, very long time. Uh, but even there, industry changes, tectonic shifts in the landscape can uh, impact their business. And when things start going wrong, culture can also uh, suffer a long-term damage. So it's important that uh, leaders through a period of change are clear about how they're looking to manage uh, the culture. Are they trying to preserve what they have or are they actually trying to use the opportunity to fix the culture that might be broken? Because sometimes when there is a yeah it. when there is a crisis, it can also be an opportunity for leaders to make changes that are otherwise very very hard to do. Yeah, that's interesting because um, another CEO who talks about culture a lot is is Netflix, and he goes back to when they they almost lost so much business when they they tried to separate the CDs and the streaming, and why didn't anyone? speak up more at that point in time. Um, so it was a time to revisit what was wrong with their culture at that point in time. Yeah, certainly. Netflix has, uh, has been really a good example of um, a company, a business that has uh, gone through a few changes, a few cycles of the industry. And their business today is very different from where they started, it's gone through a few cycles. And I'm not saying their culture or ThoughtSpot culture or some other culture is the best. I think ultimately the culture has to be authentic. It has to be a representation of people that are inside an organization. There's no one best culture. But what is important is to treat culture almost as a product. You know, you've got to product manage your culture. Uh, you have to understand, you have to articulate uh, what it is. You have to demonstrate as leaders that you actually do what you preach. If you just, if I go and say selfless excellence, but I'm you know, always making decisions that are going to help me uh, more than others, then that makes no sense. You know, nobody's going to believe uh, the idea of selfless excellence. Yes. I once heard you in Sudish talking about culture is what people do when nobody's looking. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the real test for culture is not in a corporate meeting or or some surveys that you might do. It's the day-to-day -day how people are are operating. And um, if you are building a good culture, then people clearly understand in a given situation what the right thing to do is. Ultimately, it should tell you what's the right thing to do. And people should actually have the, the ability, uh, the desire, and the empowerment to do the right thing, even though it might be in the short run detrimental to them and might appear detrimental even to the company. You know, sometimes you might have to make uh, trade-offs that doing the right thing could be taking a loss, uh, for example. But you have to demonstrate that as a leader that uh, you will do the right thing no matter what. And that is when you can actually build right. a culture that everybody will align with. So as you look ahead to 2021, you talked about really leading. The CDOs should lead their organizations on this journey to the cloud and on digital transformation. What else do you think should be a top priority in 2021? Uh, look, I think uh, digital transformation and many of these other things, there is so much that has been said about them. I think every other article I read is about digital transformation these days. So I don't know if I'll have some fundamentally new things to add there. But uh, what I can say for sure is that 2020 has been a great experiment in many ways. We have learned so much on how different a world could we operate in if 
uh, we had these somewhat you know undesirable and artificial circumstances that were created for us the way people are running their businesses the way we are consuming uh, services the way i order groceries or food uh, everything has fundamentally changed now as we come back to quote unquote normal um, i think it is very important for the leaders to ensure that the good things that we have learned from the last uh, year of uh, pandemic we bring them forward we keep them and uh, yes uh, and we don't just uh, you know fall back to old ways of doing things if anything it has uh, the pandemic has demonstrated that uh, the world can do things in a at a speed that were previously unimaginable you know talk about change yeah. and you see how quickly we were able to come up with a vaccine you know it took 3 days uh, literally for the scientists to say here is the genetic sequence uh, that we need to create and then we were able to do it and then obviously it has taken time to produce and now distribute uh, but things can be much much faster if you put your mind to it i think uh, the world uh, will be a better place uh, for the stress that we have gone through in the last one year Yeah, I hope so. There is research uh for from the 451 group that said 80% of organizations will make some of the changes that they thought were temporary or that were pandemic induced permanent. It's enabled them to challenge the status quo, break some slow legacy processes. So, um I think that's that phrase, the new normal, a better normal, hopefully. Yeah, 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 no certainly and there is this uh a book called uh, uh, anti fragile and uh, uh, i really think uh, the world is also anti fragile the idea is that if you go through a big change a big shock the systems that are uh, fragile they'll break but the ones that are anti fragile they will actually become stronger as a result of these shocks of course there is um uh, when you have a shock like what we've had it impacts people it impacts so many people have lost jobs uh and so many uh people that don't have the luxury of being at home and doing business over slack and twitter uh and email uh they have really suffered so we got to have very deep empathy for them and um continue to figure out how we can support all um parts of the society but uh, overall um i think that uh, there'll be more investment in healthcare as a result of this uh distant education has uh, has become more of a possibility which i hope will bring education to uh, you know the lower sections of the society which have been historically underserved if things can be done more digitally you can really reach the the lowest uh, part of the economic uh, stratum and uh, and serve those people uh, so i i think we have a lot of lessons to take for operating our own businesses as well as how we think about uh, the social change and how Uh, technology can play a role in in reaching out to everybody. So this is where I see your humanitarian views coming out. This is a lot of like tech for good. Is this something you're passionate about? I feel that uh, technology can play a big role and it is playing a big role already uh in improving uh people's uh, quality of life. I grew up in India. uh in a middle class family and i saw um i, I mean i was fortunate enough to um have the basics covered but uh, there is a lot of economic difficulty that you would see in people around you and if i compare now to 
when I was growing up, there is a much better uh, access to healthcare and uh, education uh, for people. It's been really uplifting. I was, my parents are old and they're in India. I was asking them, uh, how would you know when um, your turn comes for the vaccine? And they were saying that, you know, we'll just get a, a text message when our turn comes. And because India has gone through this whole process of creating an ID for everyone and understanding, you know, how to reach people. So these kinds of changes are happening uh, across the society. And I think uh, uh, everybody in the technology industry should should be paying attention to not only serving uh, the well-to-do part of the society, but also uh, figuring out how we can make a broader impact. And I think you can do both. You can build a successful company, a successful organization, and also make an impact in various ways. That sounds like a win-win combination to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at, at ThoughtSpot, we've tried to um, uh, do a few things. I think we need to do more and we can do more. Cindy, you have been running this Girls Plus Data workshops with uh, the organization that we work with and a few more volunteers uh, in the company. Uh, it's been really amazing to go to middle school students, uh, girls in particular, and expose them to the world of data. It is. Yeah. So I don't run them. I just enthusiastically support. Um, we, have, we, have, we have Kala and Kira who, who make it happen. And yes, it's, it's great to sponsor those. So let's go further ahead. If you look 15 years out into the future, Ajit, if you can imagine that far, what do you want your legacy to be on the tech industry? Uh, 15 years is such a long time. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I, who knows 15 years what happens. And I, I don't know if, look, I, um, when, I say, when I say my legacy, it's, uh, it's not going to be anything exclusive that I can create. There's no exclusive legacy. Uh, I just want to be part of teams that uh, build uh, things that last, that have a lasting impact. I'm driven by a sense of creation. And uh, when you're able to identify a meaningful problem and uh, get a group of people that are passionate about solving this problem, and you work together and, and you, you build something new that did not exist before, and it has an impact, I think it's a beautiful thing. So uh, I don't know about my legacy, but uh, my team's legacy for sure I want us to be working on, um, on, on building things that will last and hopefully outlast all of us. Yeah. I once heard you say you want to see at least 10 other startups come out of the team from ThoughtSpot. Do you remember that? Yes, of course. No, I, I work <laughs> on it on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and I'm very passionate about good people, capable people going the route of entrepreneurship because a lot of times they end up working at large companies where they're not, uh, I mean, they're doing a good job and, and obviously making an impact, but uh, they could be making a much better, much bigger impact if they were experimenting, taking risks and solving bigger, meaningful problems. So one of my dreams is to see if we can produce 10 unicorns out of ThoughtSpot. If people from ThoughtSpot, uh, they leave and they leave, they start companies and they become meaningful, that would be very satisfying because the world needs that. The world needs entrepreneurs. If all of us work for one giant big company, then <laughs> we will see no innovation practically happening. And how do we enable that now? So we do a few things inside ThoughtSpot. We try to, when we start, we recruit people that want to build stuff. You know, they're passionate about building to begin with. Uh, but once they are at the company, we also try to uh, keep things very transparent so they can see what's happening. They have an opportunity to learn what's happening in other functions. You know, engineers can learn what's happening in sales and, and vice versa. 
Um, so we do lots of things that uh, give opportunities for people to learn and grow, which are beyond their uh, specific jobs. And um, we, we try to share uh, what we are doing, why we are making certain choices as a company that's growing, how we are thinking about various issues that we are running into. And a uh, lot of these things are very, uh, very uh, meaningful uh, for, for people uh, in the company. So uh, yeah, that's one thing that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I great to see. see actually a bunch of people <laughs> have already, you know, done that. They're starting companies and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see more and more success out of companies that are being built by ex-thought spotters. Yeah, no, that's exciting. You do talk about experimentation a lot and encouraging that. But has there ever been a time in your career where that experimentation failed or you felt like, I, I can't do this and it's blocked? And if so, how did you find your way out of that? Oh, there are so many things that have failed. In fact, you know, uh, people talk about success and failures. I've always found it hard to come up with a great example of a failure or a great example I know. of success because I, I just almost think that life is a sort of a continuum. You keep doing things and uh, after every high, there is going to be a low and after every low, there is going to be a high. So I try not to take any one thing as this mega, you know, life-defining success that happened or uh, a failure that is just going to completely destroy me. I just try to keep moving. Um, there have been so many things, you know, even when we were starting these companies, uh, we went through a lot of different ideas. We said, let's do this. Oh, maybe that won't work. Let's do this. Let's do that. Uh, so you're continuously thinking about the possibilities and, and trying and failing. You, you know, when you raise money, you go and talk to a lot of investors and many of them invest in you. Many of them say, no, it's not something that I think is going to work and that's okay. You just keep uh, moving. We, I still remember 2016. The markets were crashing, Tableau stock was cut in half, LinkedIn was cut in half, NASDAQ had its worst start in the year, uh, you know, a worst start for the year ever. And we still went and uh, raised our Series C uh, at, uh, at a decent valuation. So if you're doing meaningful things, I think uh, I try not to treat highs as, as too high and lows as too lows. That's a good way of framing it. That's good. Um, you know, you're also an avid reader, and now you've given me another book to check out, Anti-Fragile. What are the top books you've read in the last few months? Or, and maybe who's your go-to for inspiration, whether it's a, it's a book's author or a podcast? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have one. I mean, I read uh, lots of uh, uh, just random you know, stuff, various things. Uh, lately, I've been reading a lot about uh, molecular biology. Uh, it's completely unrelated. I'm very fascinated with what's happening in the healthcare space, particularly life sciences. I think uh, the idea of digital biology is going to have a huge impact on, uh, on the world in the next two decades. So I have been educating myself on molecular biology. In my undergrad, I did do a biochemistry course, but that was it. I've forgotten a lot of it. And it's funny, you laugh at this, but uh, my fifth grader had some notes about uh, uh, molecular biology from some course that he's doing. And I was reading those notes. That's my starting point. <laughs> then I have a friend uh, who is a professor uh, at a university he, uh, in bioinformatics. And he pointed me to this book called What is Life? Uh, it's written by Schrodinger, uh, the very famous physicist. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's a fascinating read about that takes you all the way from, uh, atoms, uh, which is a more physics concept 
uh, to life, you know, how that turns into life. And uh, so I, I just read a lot of different things. Uh, we talked about this uh, book I gave out to all our exec team, uh, Atomic Habits. Uh, I read a book called Psychology of Money. That was very good. It's not about how to make more money. Okay. It's, it, it, it talks more about <laughs> <laughs> how you should not worry about making more money just for the sake of making more money. It's an extremely good book. So I highly recommend that. Um, I, you know, reading is, 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 is fascinating. I've been reading the, the autobiography that uh, Barack Obama read, uh, wrote, uh, came out yeah. last year. Yeah. It's, it's pretty thick. So I haven't gone through it all. So quite a breadth, quite a breadth. And, and let me clarify, I'm laughing, not because you're reading about molecular biology in your free time. It's that we both want to fix this healthcare and we don't talk about it. I didn't tell you I'm taking this class for MIT and rewriting the vaccine distribution plans based on what I want to see happen. <laughs> and we've never compared yeah. notes. <laughs> you know, actually, it's, uh, there is a lot more interest uh, in this whole space of uh, broad space of healthcare. And there are so many sub segments within that. I am trying to spend more time on the science side of things mm. than the operational right operational again it's there, there is a lot of uh, new things that need to happen there and are happening but uh, i think the fundamental innovation that's happening in this space and that is built on uh, what has happened in the last uh, 20 years when it comes to genome sequencing and how easily you can sequence a genome and all the data that comes out and how you can use that data to actually inform what drugs might be more uh, useful for certain conditions and so on and so forth. Yes. Being able to work on uh, diseases that are sort of long tail of diseases because economic incentives haven't been big enough for, you know, drug manufacturers to pharmaceutical companies to invest in molecules that will help maybe a disease that is only 100,000 people in the world. Right. You know, but with all this data that is being generated with precision medicine, you can actually do that. So yeah, uh, it's a it's a, it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge uh, economic opportunity, but uh, it's a huge quality of life opportunity for us as a society. And uh, and more time I'm spending here, uh, I'm actually pretty excited to see all the investments and interests that are going into this space. My only, uh, if uh, people are listening, my only ask is for people from outside of uh, healthcare to transition over. You know, if you're an engineer working at Google, you worked on search infrastructure for a long time, the space of uh, biology healthcare needs you because that area has a lot of scientists, but they don't have so, uh, meaning biology related scientists, not so much computer scientists. There is, there is more and more going, but I think we need that cross-pollination because it's a very multidisciplinary uh, approach that is required to solve those problems fundamentally. Definitely. So the other thing I know you get really excited about is cricket. Yes. And I understand there's this four test match going on between India and England right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's at very odd hours for me here in California, but I, I have been staying up late uh, for those games. Uh, you know, I mean, if you grew up in India, you, you, you will be a cricket fan. It's, there's nothing exceptional uh, about that. And uh, over time, I've just you know, found opportunities to watch games and uh, learn what's happening. And I'm a huge fan. Yeah, certainly. So I think this podcast episode will air after the before test match is completed. But give me your prediction for who will advance on to the world championship here. Like, re like really? Oh, come on. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you in England when they won 
I don't. Okay, I, I only read up on cricket for this episode, Ajit. But you were in <laughs> England when they won a big match, right? Two years uh, ago, England, when I England think? won a big match, yeah, they won the World Cup last year. Cup. It was a uh, good thing India wasn't in the final. They didn't lose <laughs> the final, so I didn't have to see India losing uh, in the finals. Um, but uh, it was the India New uh, England New Zealand final, and uh, it was probably the most dramatic game of cricket ever. And I was so lucky to actually be able to watch that live. It was it was fascinating. That's great. Do you watch American football at all? Did you or no? You don't do that. I watched Super Bowl because of my son. Um, when he was, I think, in second and third grade, he came back home crying one day. And I said, what happened? He said, everybody at school was talking about uh, uh, Super Bowl. And I didn't watch it because I was I'm not into American football. So now I make sure that at least I'm watching Super Bowl every year with him so he doesn't feel uh, left out. And I'm learning more about the game. It's actually a very interesting game as well. I think any any sport that has evolved over so many uh, you know decades and centuries, uh, once you get into it, it can be very fascinating. You know, the competition, the, the, the creativity, the tactics, um, it can be extremely fascinating. So I'm, I would, when I, grew, I was growing up, I would watch, uh, pretty much any any sport that was showing up on TV, any sport, all kinds of, you know, Sepak Takra is a game that you may not even have Never heard, heard of, of what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, I would watch that. So I, I enjoy uh, watching sports in general. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll teach you about football if you teach me about cricket. Sure, it's a deal. <laughs> I, I swing it like a softball <laughs> bat. I have, have tried to play it. Um, well, you know, Aji, if we look back on the last year that has been unusual, uh, what has made you laugh out loud, like true belly laugh, tears running down your cheeks? Oh, it has to be the stuff that my son does. I mean, he is a, he's a funny young uh, kid. He's in fifth grade, but his sense of humor is just amazing. A lot of it is very sort of situational. So I couldn't say, you know, one big thing, but uh, uh, oh, he makes us all laugh uh, all the time, and I've been encouraging him to actually write or do illustrations and and you know create his own comic books. He's he's, he's very funny. It has to be it has to be him. Yeah, oh, good. Well, I look forward to seeing some of those comics. <laughs> Let's see if he if he takes me up on my suggestion. Ajit, thank you so much for being on the Data Chief podcast this week. Thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. It was fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. That's C-I-N-D-I Housen. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. 
Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.